Indeed, I am highly honored to do so. Um, <clears throat> today, we have the honor of having Adam Lee, the gentleman in the blue shirt, as our guest. Mr. Lee is a writer and activist and computer programmer living in New York City. He is the author of Daylight Atheism, a book which defends the atheist viewpoint and argues that discarding religious belief as a form of genuine liberation and the gateway to a moral life filled with purpose and joy. In addition to regular updates for a Daylight Atheism, Adam Lee has written numerous articles, has been interviewed for podcasts, and has spoken at major national conferences, including the Secular Student Alliance and Skepticon. He is on the Speaker's Bureau of the Secular Student Alliance. In his blockbuster book, the God Delusion, Richard Dawkins favorably quotes one of Lee's essays, The New Ten Commandments. Another of Lee's essays won the 2009 Top Quark, the first place prize for science writing in a contest held by the science and culture blog, Three Quarks, and you're out. No, just Three Quarks. Um, three Quarks daily, actually, and that's enough to satisfy anybody. Um, and it was judged by a Harvard professor and uh, uh, noted science writer and humanist, Steven Pinker. In a backhanded compliment during the 2008 U.S. elections, daylight atheism was called and was cited in a campaign attack ads run by U.S. Senator Elizabeth Dole and the National Republican Senatorial Committee against Dole's Democratic challenger, Kay Hagan. These ads sought to tar Hagen by connecting her to daylight atheism and atheists in general. Despite the concerted campaign of atheist bashing, Dole lost by a substantial margin. And so we are quite pleased to have with us the man who made that possible, Adam Lee. Thank you, Jim. I uh, just wanted to add one thing to that bio. Um, my two more recent books are, in addition to Daylight Atheism, with uh, the Christian author Andrew Murtaugh, we collaborated on a book called Meta on God, the Big Questions, and the Just City, published by Cascade Books, and a new one now that I am publishing serialized, in serialized form through Patreon, uh, Commonwealth, a Novel of Utopia. Mm. And today, thanks to your very thoughtful invitation, I would like to speak on how white atheists can do better. See if the screen share works. So, so here we go. Okay. So here is the thesis of today's talk. With each new generation, America is becoming more racially diverse and more secular. Yet the atheist community remains disproportionately white and has made some conspicuous missteps in our outreach to people of color. What have we gotten wrong in the past and how can we do better in the future? So I'll start with the good news. Atheism has a bright future in America. The younger rising generations are the least religious in our country's history. Surveys of the millennial generation, usually defined as people born between 1982 and 2000, find that one quarter of them are explicitly non-religious, a record. Just 40% of millennials say religion is very important in their lives, and only 27% say they believe the Bible is the literal word of God. And the generation after that, sometimes called Generation Z, only amplifies this trend. 
more than one third of Gen Z teenagers say they're atheist, agnostic, or religiously unaffiliated. And according to the Christian polling firm Barna Research, only 4% of them hold a biblical worldview. This demographic shift has happened with startling speed just within the last two to three decades, and it's shifting America's religious makeup in a big way. According to the latest general social survey data, Americans who say they have no religion now represent 23% of the population, this rising line here, which puts us in a statistical tie with Catholics and evangelical Christians as the largest religious or non-religious demographic in the country. I'd love to be able to claim the credit for this. I'd love to be able to say it was the fearless activism of the new atheists that broke the spell of religion. But I think the reality is that it's largely a self-inflicted wound. The culture warriors of the religious right chose their battles badly, especially LGBT rights and same-sex marriage. The younger generations grew up knowing out of the closet gay and lesbian people, and the push for equal rights just seemed like an obvious step to them. By opposing it, the churches painted themselves as bigoted and archaic institutions that no decent person would want to be affiliated with. The awful clergy abuse scandal and the lengths that the churches went to to sweep it under the rug was another gaping wound they inflicted on themselves. Here's something else you should know about millennials and Gen Z. Not only are they the least religious, they're also the most racially diverse generations in American history. Among millennials, people who identify as non-white, meaning Hispanic, African-American, Asian, or multiracial, make up 40% of the population. But among Gen Z, it's 47%. America is destined very soon for a majority-minority future, and we're very nearly at the tipping point. And that's where I start getting a little worried, because now I have to name the elephant in the room. The atheist movement is white. I mean, really white. In 2013, according to polling data, three out of four American atheists were white. And that's actually an improvement from a few years earlier when it was as high as 80%. As the country steadily grows more diverse, the atheist community, our conferences, our meetup groups, our activist groups, our published authors, remain lily white and mostly male. That doesn't make us bad people, but as I'll explain, there are some predictable problems that can arise when not everyone's voice is in the room. To be clear, there are good reasons why the atheist movement might have looked this way at the beginning. There are still a lot of places where to publicly declare your disbelief in religion is to swim against a powerful tide of social pressure. It's to be expected that only the most privileged people would be able to do that and escape the backlash. And it's especially hard to be an out-of-the-closet atheist when you're a minority from a traditionally religious community. In those circumstances, declaring yourself an atheist is a radical step, and one that people will hear as you saying you want to cut ties with your family and reject your culture. And when you're part of a culture that genuinely does face discrimination and threats, few people will want to divest themselves of that support network. Uh, this is the atheist speaker, Alam Shaha, talking about this problem uh, with regard to his own uh, Bangladeshi ethnic background. Um, he, he and his family emigrated to the UK in the 70s, and he said he faced continual street harassment, discrimination, even physical assault. And he said, for many of the people I grew up with, being Bangladeshi is inseparable from being a Muslim. Another example from the atheist speaker, Mandisa Thomas. She said, it can be extremely difficult to discuss religion objectively in the black community. Many black people have social, emotional, and financial stakes invested in the church, so to even say they have doubt, she says, is like committing treason. 
But the issue is, if we don't make any special effort to correct it, then the whiteness of atheism can become self-perpetuating. Consider how it looks from the viewpoint of people who are still part of those traditionally religious cultures. If they look to the atheist movement and see only white faces, they may well conclude that no one else from their community has ever made it out and found a safe haven among us, and that may discourage them from trying. Another issue is that if the atheist community is majority white, we are poorly positioned to speak to what people of other races care about. There are many issues that have historically been invisible to us because they rarely impact us, like the racist street harassment and abuse that Alam Shaha spoke about, environmental racism, which means that poor minority communities bear the brunt of lead in the water and smog in the air, hostile and draconian immigration laws, unequal taxation, which ensures that schools in poor areas are chronically starved of resources, and of course, the aggressive and violent over-policing of minority communities. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you about some of these uh, stories I have pictures from here. They've been in every headline recently. Here's how Debbie Goddard, from the Vice President of American Atheist, puts it. I'm frustrated that we, the movement, only seem to get involved with public education when a teacher puts Bible quotes on the walls of her classroom, when a football coach leads his team in prayer, when a science teacher spends time promoting intelligent design, when administration prevents a student from starting an atheist club, or when a high school graduation is scheduled to take place in a church. Then we swoop in with our science advocates and wall of separation to make everything right. But we don't seem to worry about the fact that the high school's graduation rate might be less than 50% and the shared science textbooks are older than the students. If the atheist community wants to be inclusive, and if it, especially if it wants to be a place where non-white people feel welcome, it's not good enough for us to sit back and wait for them to come to us. And it's certainly not acceptable to say that our issues are the correct issues or the most important ones that everyone should care about above all else. Separation of church and state, teaching evolution in schools, science-based public policy, these things are important. And I personally am in favor of all of them, but they're just not going to seem as critical if your chief worry is whether your kids are going to get lead poisoning from their tap water or whether you might be murdered on camera by the police. The good news, if you can call it that, is that there's reason to believe that America at large is beginning to wake up to these problems. The police killing of George Floyd and the civil rights marches and demonstrations that it sparked all over the country have shown a light on the country's legacy of racial injustice. But that makes it all the more critical that atheists and secular groups take part in this growing movement and that we not just stand on the sidelines and let it pass us by. Obviously, speaking as a white person myself, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being white. But what I am saying is that we can't assume that our views and our concerns are the most important or the only rational ones. If we want people to join our movement, we have to be a movement that speaks to what they care about. And that goes back to this uh, quote about what, you know, what is the importance, what is the benefit of defending separation of church and state if your school is failing and you have no resources. Unfortunately, the problem doesn't stop at mere lack of inclusivity or disinterest in civil rights issues. There are also atheists who intentionally promote harmful stereotypes and outright racism. For, exa for example, T.J. Kirk, a.k.a. the amazing atheist and popular YouTuber who sneers at black culture as, quote, a victim cult. This kind of bigotry makes people of color justifiably not want to be affiliated with us. This is from a, a black atheist writer, Martin Hughes. He said, why would I care about a predominantly white atheist club that cordons off race issues when that impacts my day-to-day -day life far, far more than what I do or don't believe about some non-existent God? And it's not just angry shouted on YouTube either. 
some of these regrettable stereotypes can be heard from some of the best known and most popular atheists out there. For instance, Sam Harris, the best-selling atheist author, has argued that to prevent terrorism, police and airport security should racially profile people who, quote, look like they could be Muslim, singling them out for questioning searches and security scrutiny. Exactly what Sam Harris thinks a Muslim looks like, he didn't explain, but it's nearly impossible to imagine what this could mean if it's not a crudely stereotypical suggestion to crack down on people with dark skin. This slide just shows some people who are from across the world who are all Muslim. I don't think these people have any appearance in common that would allow airport security or police to single them out. But it doesn't end there. On his podcast, Sam Harris gave a sympathetic softball interview to the conservative ideologue Charles Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve, a book which argues that black people are genetically predestined to be less intelligent. At the same time, Harris has said that it's very hard to find a black guest who's not, quote, contaminated by identity politics. What this implies in that is that in Harris's mind, racist viewpoints like Murray's are somehow the neutral or the honest ones, whereas black people who speak up for their own rights are displaying bias. Then there's the case of Ahmed Mohammed, a nerdy Texas 14-year-old interested in engineering who brought a homemade clock to school to show it off to his teachers. But because he was brown and Muslim, his school assumed it was a bomb and had a ludicrously aggressive panic reaction summoning the police to intimidate him and threatening him with expulsion if he wouldn't sign a confession on the spot without talking to his parents or a lawyer. Here we have a case where a scientifically curious young person was being cruelly repressed by an ignorant conservative community. Luckily, we have Richard Dawkins, the great science communicator who heard about this episode and swooped in to defend the school. In a series of Twitter rants, Dawkins called Ahmed hoax boy and implied that he couldn't possibly have built the clock himself and that he wanted to get himself arrested for some reason. In the topper, and I'm sorry to say this, he compared Ahmed, again, a 14-year-old interested in engineering, to an ISIS child soldier. This is a story that Dawkins linked to in the previous tweet. Whether or not Dawkins and Harris mean to be prejudiced, this is exactly the kind of thing that drives non-white people away from the atheist community. The knee-jerk aggressiveness, the rush to judgment, the presumption of guilt, they may insist and probably believe that it's only atheism, it's only Islam the religion they object to, not the people who practice it. But many wavering Muslims who are considering atheism, when they hear remarks like these, will hear a message of prejudice loud and clear. And their reaction is likely to be, well, maybe Islam isn't true after all, but these atheists are a bunch of bigots. I don't want anything to do with these guys. Last but not least, there's Michael Shermer, the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. I could say a lot about Shermer, but let's stop, start with his first tweet where he he takes it upon himself to claim that women and people of color don't care about racism or sexism and want the rest of us to stop talking about it. And the less said about this, the better. There's also the time that Shermer did a podcast, you can see it here, with Stefan Molyneux, a Canadian white supremacist, and called him, quote, one of the most articulate podcasters for reason. When people criticized Shermer for this, he claimed that he'd never heard of Molyneux and did no preparation, apparently didn't even bother to Google him because this slide saying he's a white nationalist was the first Google result. Didn't even bother to Google him before speaking to him and broadcasting their interview to the world. This is where we need to talk about that dreaded term, identity politics. Usually this phrase is used to dismiss activism by women or minorities who are supposedly seeking special privileges on the basis of race, gender, or religion. The reality is that everyone engages in identity politics but when it's being done by a mainstream or a privileged group, we don't call it that. We just call it politics. 
When Christian churches demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in schools and courts, or when Trump-supporting Republicans rally to ban immigration from Latin American countries, or when rich people lobby for cuts in the capital gains tax, what is that if not identity politics? Religion, race, and class are all aspects of people's identities. And of course, by any reasonable definition, the atheist movement is also a kind of identity politics. We are seeking to organize and to act on the basis of our shared identity as atheists. Atheists like the ones I've named who insist that their own viewpoint is the neutral or the default one, and it's those other people who are polluting the movement with their biases and their identity politics are like the proverbial fish who doesn't know what water is. Part of being a rational person means recognizing that everyone has biases which influence and shape their views. And another part of being rational is acknowledging that you yourself are the least qualified person to detect your own bias. That's why scientists do double-blind studies. Okay, so by this point I may have depressed you a little, so let me change gears and talk about how atheists can be better allies. Just to establish my bona fides at the outset, I'm not claiming that I'm the expert or that I have all the answers. This stuff is hard to get right, and I think reasonable people can often disagree about the best course of action to take in response to racism. As an illustration of that, let me tell you about my friend Sarah Brosh. I met Sarah in 2009 at an event organized by the Freedom From Religion Foundation for which she was then working as a legal intern. I admired her writing about growing up Jehovah's Witness and how she escaped at great personal cost from that dangerous cultic belief system. I also admired her human rights work on behalf of women in the Islamic world. We struck up a correspondence. She agreed to write guest posts for my blog, which she did on occasion for the following two years. Now, do you remember a story from a year or two ago about how a white Yale grad student called the cops on a black student who was sleeping in a student lounge? Sarah was the white student. At the time this happened, I hadn't been in correspondence with Sarah for over a year. Regardless, when I heard about it, I wrote a post saying that I was shocked. It seemed so incongruous with what I thought I knew about her, but I absolutely condemned what she did. I still got a flood of hate mail from people who thought that wasn't enough and who wanted, in addition to disavowing her, wanted me to delete everything she'd ever written on, from my site. Because, well, I, honestly, I didn't see what that would achieve. The view I still hold is that whether or not there was anything in Sarah's history of writing which foreshadowed this act, and for the record, I don't believe there was, but either way, it's an important data point for us to evaluate her character. To me, it feels like dishonesty to try to change or cover up the past. Did I do enough in this case? Should I also have purged my sight of everything Sarah had ever written, deleted any trace that I was ever associated with her? I don't know. Maybe I didn't get this right. I bring it up because I don't want anyone to think that I'm claiming infallibility for myself. With that proviso in mind, let's talk a little about how atheists can do better on race. The first thing I would suggest is to learn about the evidence of implicit bias. In many areas of life, minorities still face obstacles that white people don't. One of the classic examples are studies which send out hundreds of identical resumes to job postings, identical that is except for the name on the top. Half the resumes have a white-coded name like Emily or Greg, and half have a black-coded name like Lakeisha or Jamal. In every other respect, they're exactly the same. And then the researchers see how many get callbacks for an interview. You can see for yourself what happens. They, they uh, estimate that a white name yields as many more callbacks as an additional eight years of experience. And it's not just job interviews where this kind of thing happens. People of color are shown fewer houses and worse houses by realtors than white home buyers. There have been similar secret shopper experiments on this. When they get car loans, 
They're charged higher interest rate rates than white buyers with similar credit histories. In school, black kids are more likely to be punished by teachers for the same misbehavior and less likely to get into gifted programs even with the same test scores. Black people are less likely to get a response when they write letters to politicians and local government. Black hospital patients are less likely to get effective treatment for pain. The list goes on and on. If you're a white person, this kind of discrimination is invisible to you because you never experience it. And if you don't know it happens, you may think that minorities are poor because they just aren't trying hard enough, or they're lazy, or they lack a work ethic. If you've ever heard the term white privilege, this is what it means. It means that certain things will always seem easier to you just by virtue of the kind of society we live in. To be clear, the fact that people show these prejudiced tendencies doesn't mean that they're evil, bigoted racists. It means that we live in a society which privileges white voices above others, and we've all absorbed that unconscious bias, along with all the other ideas and attitudes we're bathed in that we pick up without realizing it. And there's no reason to believe the skeptical community is a special exception to this. If you want to counter this kind of prejudice, you can do it through consciousness raising, which is the, the ability to see the world the way someone from a different background than you sees it. All human beings have the capacity for this, but it doesn't just come naturally. It's a skill that has to be learned and practiced. The worst thing you can do is just shoot from the hip and claim you intuitively understand someone else's problems and what they care about. For example, we atheists often have nothing but good things to say about science. But if you're a black person, you might not think of science as an unmitigated blessing. The first thing that might come to your mind could be the Tuskegee experiment, where the US government recruited poor Southern black men who had contracted syphilis and deliberately didn't treat them in order to study the progression of the disease. Or you might think of Sarah Bartman, an 18th century South African woman of the Khoi tribe who was brought to Europe and treated like a zoo exhibit by some of the most eminent scientists of the day, including George Cuvier, the founding father of paleontology, in a bid to prove that black people were primitive and racially inferior. You can see the caption here is this crudely uh, caricature drawing of her in Cuvier's illustrations of the natural history of mammals. Uh, she was placed in between a wild sheep and a langur monkey. Or if you're a Latino person, you might think of Cornelius Rhodes, the first director of the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and one of the pioneers of chemotherapy. He also wrote a letter in which he boasted that he had experimented on, intentional, on, on poor Puerto Ricans and intentionally killed several of them by injecting cancer cells into them. He, he wrote about Puerto Rico, what this island needs is not public health work, but a tidal wave to totally exterminate the population. If you want to practice consciousness raising, one of the best things you can do is read often and widely. Literature is an empathy expander, but it only works if you intentionally seek out different perspectives. How many atheist blogs do you know of written by people of color? Or what was the last book, fiction or nonfiction, you read that deals with racial issues or was written by a non-white person? These are a couple of books that are uh, favorites of mine. Um, there's uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander about mass incarceration. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks about the woman whose cancer cells became the basis for most uh, human genetic research. Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, which is sort of a memoir he wrote to his son about racism in America. Uh, Evicted by Matthew Desmond, this book won the Pulitzer Prize. It was about um, uh, get, ghetto slum wards and um, eviction as a tool of keeping people poor. And the last one, a special favorite of mine, Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shetterly, about the black African-American women who won, uh, mathematicians who won the space race. There was a, a quite good movie made out of this book. A uh, couple other 
just small suggestions. I can come back to these later. Dear White People is a uh, series on Netflix, one of my favorites, a couple other books. The next thing I want to talk about is paying attention to representation. What do people think of when they think of atheists? If they know anything about us, it's likely to be these guys, the Four Horsemen, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. You know, no women in this bunch, no people of color. The most diverse thing about these guys is whether or not they have British accents. We've also had too many atheist conferences whose speakers were all or nearly all white men, maybe with an occasional woman thrown in for variety. This is not good for us. We need to counteract the perception that atheism is a white guy's clubhouse, and that means making a deliberate and focused effort to be inclusive. Um, these banners are two of the, at the time of writing, some of the most popular atheist groups on Facebook. You can see a trend, I think the top one has uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and the bottom one has Tyson and Ian Hersiali, and all the rest are just white men leaning out of the shadows. To be clear, this is not a call for tokenism. If you get one black person on the board of an atheist group, or if you expect one person of color to speak on behalf of all people of color, this is not the way. What I'm saying is that we should have speaker lists and board members and panels that are reflective of and proportional to America's true diversity of ages, ethnicities, and genders, which as I mentioned earlier, is nearly half among younger generations. Sometimes assembling a list like that will be difficult. Sometimes it will mean making an effort to reach out to people we haven't reached out to before. Sometimes it will take us out of our comfort zones. That's a good thing. Some atheist groups are still struggling with this. This is written by a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Synopathy, about CFI, the Center for Inquiry, who had been trying for several years to get them to put more non-white people on their board and was pretty much harshly rebuffed. And then not only did they not listen to her, they cut ties with her. A board member of CFI said to her, finding people that want to serve on the board and have the appropriate qualifications isn't easy. Effectively blaming you know, not CFI themselves for not reaching out to non-white people, but rather the fact they don't think there are anyone, anyone who's qualified and wants to do it. And this brings me to my next point about what we can do. Listen, it sounds simple, but it's not easy. If a person of color tells you about bias or poor treatment they've experienced, it means that they trust you enough to confide in you. The worst thing you can do is to start coming up with reasons to dismiss that concern or to tell them they probably didn't experience what they say they did. Also, don't lecture them about what they should do unless they've specifically asked for advice. I know we like to solve problems, but trust me, it's not helpful. Just offer your sympathy and sit with that discomfort. My last suggestion is to stand with people of color. We should seek out and patronize small businesses owned by minority entrepreneurs. Those of us who have the power to hire for jobs should look for qualified minority candidates. You can also donate money to scholarship funds that help historically disadvantaged communities like the uh, Black Skeptics First in the Family Humanist Scholarship Program for uh, families of color the first, for the first member from the family to go to college. We should also support and partner with activist groups which address issues like over-policing, mass incarceration, or immigrant detention and family separation at the borders. We should be joining Black Lives Matter marches. We should be lobbying for state and local governments to defund the police and to reinvest that money in historically disadvantaged communities for services like affordable housing and schools, job training and mental health initiatives, services that lift people up and actually reduce crime rather than waiting for it to happen and then punishing it after the fact. There's just one more point I want to make, which is that I don't think the things I've spoken about today are optional or nice to haves. A more diverse atheist movement isn't the bonus we might strive for after achieving our other goals. Whether we realize it or not, the stakes are high. 
as I said at the beginning, just as America is becoming more secular, it's also becoming more racially diverse. If atheists fail to reach out to people of color, we'll be committing slow motion demographic suicide. We'll be consigning ourselves to irrelevance as a shrinking cul-de-sac in an increasingly diverse world. There are signs that we're doing better and that the atheist community is diversifying. I mentioned a 2013 survey from the Barna Group which found that atheism is becoming slightly more racially and ethnically inclusive. Somewhat more interesting was a 2018 national poll, the Cooperative Congressional Election Survey, which found that atheists have the least racial resentment out of all religious demographics surveyed, which is an astonishingly positive result considering we're also the, one of the whitest demographics surveyed. But now's not the time to pat ourselves on the back and declare that the job is done. We're living in a pivotal moment when America shows real signs of making racial progress. Recent polls find that 74% of Americans believe the country has a problem with racial injustice, which is a huge jump from the number of people who said the same as recently as 2014. Another poll from this year found that a two to one majority of Americans believe the police are more likely to use excessive force against black people, which represents a complete reversal in public opinion from just four years ago. All across the nation, Confederate flags are being removed, statues of slave owners and colonizers are being pulled down, but we have to build on this momentum to bring about real meaningful change. We have a lot of work left to do, both to build a secular community that's truly as diverse in Amer as America, and also to improve America itself, to ensure that it lives up to its founding promise of equality for all citizens, no matter their skin color, no matter their beliefs or lack thereof. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Yes, thank you very much, Adam. Um, people are free to ask any questions they wish. Yeah. I would like to start off by saying that one of the things I learned in my watching that movie last night was the connection between religion and racism. I mean, I always knew that would, there was some vague connection, but the obvious use of religion to oppress uh, minority groups in this country was really um, uh, brought to a great realization to me last night watching that movie because it, it, it goes back and I don't know if you've seen the movie yet or not, but Which movie is it? Um, Holy Hierarchy. Oh, yes. The one you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, um, I think I think that's very true and I think it's an it's an underappreciated point that religious morals build very naturally into into slavery and into the country's history of racial injustice and that yes. you know the the, the slaves who were brought to this country at its founding were basically forced to become Christian as a way of keeping them docile right. because slave owners would teach them that this is your role prescribed by God and if you follow it and you do not disobey, then you'll be rewarded. Uh, with yes. Heaven. And it's, it's very convenient that way because it teaches people that they can indefinitely defer gratification, that justice will be done in some other world, so it doesn't matter what happens in this one. Yes, and it's it's... It's always been a concern of mine, but I've always kept it separate from my atheism because I did not see the direct connection. But thanks to people like you and that movie, I really do see the direct connection now. So I appreciate it's, that very much. It's something that we have to you know, step cautiously on because it is, it is undeniably true that religion has played a huge role in propping uh, racism. And something we yes. can even see now with Donald Trump that still after everything, by far his staunchest backers are white evangelicals. Yes. But there are also black people who are, you know, faithful Christians in their own way. And even though it may be true that they hold those beliefs because they were forced on their ancestors, it's not, 
it's not a good move to say, well, you, you only believe because your ancestors were forced to believe. So your belief is not really genuine. That's, that's never going to change anyone's no, mind. That you're and it's, you know, right it's, a very, it's a very sensitive topic for, for many of them, because I think I had a slide earlier about how a lot of black people genuinely do find community in the church, and it has been a force for racial progress. Yes. So it's, it's hard to do a frontal, I guess, a frontal assault on church to say that it, you know, these beliefs are false when they've helped so many people. It's, it's, it's a difficult question for us. It is. It is indeed. Uh, Brent, you have a question? Yeah. Well, I have a comment. Uh, first off, I want to note when it comes to the dearth of speakers uh, in the uh, community, in the conferences, etc., how much of that is due to uh, self-selection? I mean, uh, it's relatively well known that uh, speaking in public is one of the things most disliked among anybody. And uh, I certainly think it uh, applies to people that are uh, culturally conditioned to be quiet. Yeah, you know, I, think, not, I think it's definitely a, a chicken and egg problem in that it's hard to find speakers who are people of color who want to talk about atheism for those same reasons I mentioned earlier, that many of them are seen as traitors to their race or culture by other members of their community. That, that does make it difficult on us, but you know, I also think that's not an excuse to give up. I think there are a lot of speakers who are, who are women, who are people of color, who are very qualified to talk about these issues, but we have to go a bit further afield than we might um, be used to doing. I think a lot of the the people who are best positioned to speak to these issues have not necessarily made their name, gotten themselves known as atheists. Uh, the writer Ijoma Oluo, who's, I had a slide from her before, I believe she spoke at the American Humanist Association uh, a couple years back to talk about atheism, but she's not known for speaking about atheism. So it's the kind of thing you might not know if you weren't very familiar with her. And that's what I mean about going further afield is that we have to, you know, it's easy for atheist groups to say there's a list of like 20 or 30 people who speak about atheism who everyone knows about. And it's easy to reach out to them as a first, as a first resort. And finding people who don't look like that, that standard of, you know, the, the white male atheist professor, it requires us to, to search a bit harder than we have done in the past. But these people do exist. Well, the other thing I was going to comment on was when you talk about uh, the good the black community churches have done. Uh, I think we need to separate, uh, and I know it's difficult for the people who believe in it, but I think we need to separate the God question or the, the belief question from what the community church has done. You consider and say, well, yeah, the church did a lot of good things, but did they, could they have done those good things without any religion? Well, certainly they could. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just to speak further to that, I don't think the reason that the Black church has been the hub of so much civil rights activism is because the Black church is inherently good or better. It's because for most of their history in America, it was the only organization of Black people where this kind of networking and activism could get done. Oh, yeah. I, black people I, were, you know, were shut out of power in so many places that the church was became the hub of the community because they had few other options. And that, you know, again, not to say that the black church hasn't done harm either. A lot of people have said, when I was at Proposition 8, the one that banned gay marriage when it passed in California the first time in 2006, 8, I believe, that black evangelical voters were one of the pivotal demographics right. for it. 
So it, it's a definite paradox for us because the church has done a lot of harm and we are right to point that out. But a lot of black people to them, the church has also been a force of, of charity, of mutual support, of social organization. And we, it's hard to attack it in a way that doesn't sound like we're not concerned with any of those issues. It's definitely something we have to pick our battles very carefully. Yeah, it's kind of like essentially telling someone that their uh, mother, father, brother, etc., are a uh, criminal, and uh, you know that's like they don't, they can't have that cognitive dissonance. You know, they can't accept that. Well, yes, I know this person as a great person, as somebody I love, and and etc. I've known them all their life, and yet there's someone who also committed this horrendous crime that I would never believe them capable of. Thanks, Brent. Um, Jim Peterson, you had your, I can't tell if that's a hand or a check mark. I'm not sure if that's. Well, it, it's, it's a check mark trying to be a hand. Because okay. But at any rate, um, you know, I, I think you brought up uh, a lot of points that I, I think um, if, if you read, read the magazines and so forth, we've, We've heard a lot about these things, and they're good principle ideas. However, I'm mostly concerned about the practical application. I mean, look at us here. We're mostly males. Most of us are over 50, <laughs> maybe even 55 or so. I don't know. But at any rate, um, and, and, and the problem is that uh, we don't have the connections. Um, and we don't have the experience. And the experience is among the, among the most important things because whenever we get, uh, we have a meeting and a black person wanders in, um, they are frequently accosted by questions as if they were the ambassador from yeah, black America. Happens all the time. Yes, yeah, like, it does. Like I said, it's... And we need to respect them as individual human beings with their own ideas, values, and opinions. And, and that would be one of the first things, but that's not what, and, and people are well-intentioned in this, but it is a, it is a problem. But the and big thing is that we don't have that many connections with the black community generally. Yeah, and it's definitely another of those chicken and egg problems where you know, the best way to make connections is to know people in the community. But if you don't know people in the community, where do they start? And I just, you know, there's another tough one for us because a lot of, like you said, a lot of black people, if they have the experience of being the only person of color in the room, they get swarmed with questions or with well-meaning you know, generalizations, and then they're not going to come back. And I think one, one thing that I find that helps is that we, it does help a bit to meet people where they're at. And, you know, like I said, not wait for them to come to us. I, I attended a Black Lives Matter march in, in Bayside in Queens two weeks ago, and there were a lot of white people there in the crowd. I'd say it was about 50-50 uh, black and not black. And I think this is a this is an excellent way to network. You know, of all of all things, obviously, this is the moment where this kind of activism right. has, has <clears throat> come to circle. But it's also a place to engage with people who are involved in this kind of activism that we might not have experienced before. There were there were two elderly uh, an elderly white couple at the march in Bernie Sanders T-shirts, and I thought that was great. This is this is the kind of connection building that we need. To, you know, for for people to meet with young activists, people to meet with activists of all different kinds of cultures and backgrounds. Uh, can I, I want to address a question in the chat from uh, Sharon about how to reverse the demonization of being woke, which is really just consciousness raising. I think this is always a tough one because no matter what, what you call it, the term is always going to be stereotyped and demonized for, for people who are, you know, 
social justice warrior was the one I heard before. Now it's kind of turning into woke uses the pejorative. I don't think there's any easy way to reverse the demonization of that. I think whatever term we use will always become, you know, an object of hatred from the right, even from the religious right. But I think the best thing we can do is not, not spend too much time trying to respond to criticisms that are obviously made in bad faith. I think we should just get out, speak our own words, do the activism that matters to us, and not, there are people who are never going to be convinced, and we should not waste too much energy trying to, trying to argue with them. Some, something I happen to believe about atheism as well. I think the bulk of activism should be to reach out to like the person on the fence, the third party onlooker, not from someone who's dead set against you and who is never going to change their mind. Uh, just one other thing, she's, Sharon asked about cancel culture. So uh, I actually saw really a good take on this from a Christian writer who goes by Slacktivist. And he says that cancel culture is really just what we call disgrace in the past. You know, if you were like in the Scarlet Letter, if you were convicted of adultery, you'd be you know, whipped through town with a Scarlet A on your shirt. Like that is cancel culture. That is, it's just, we didn't used to call it that. There have always been consequences for people who transgress the opinion, you know, the, the common wisdom of what is moral and what is not. It's just now that the standards of what is moral and what is not are changing. And there are people who are caught off guard by it. Like, you know, like that episode with me and Sarah, you can really get, feel like you can get ambushed by this sort of thing. Sometimes it feels like the standards have changed overnight. And, you know, I, I myself kind of felt that, that sort of anger when people wanted me to delete everything Sarah had ever written from my site. I, you know, I don't think there's any, there's no, there's nothing you can say that will satisfy some people. There will always be someone who is going to be mad at you for what you do or don't do. I think the best thing you can do is just, you know, pick, pick your battles, find the, find the standards that matter to you that you care about upholding, and then don't worry too much about popular opinion because it's always going to shift. Oh, thanks, Sharon, for that question and comments, because I was going to bring up cancel culture later, but um, Jim Young, you had a comment question? Uh, yeah, I watch a lot of YouTube videos, and I'd like to comment on the um, issue of Black people speaking up. I, I think it depends on the topic. Uh, if you go on YouTube and you um, search for videos concerning police abuse of uh, members of the black community, you will be overwhelmed with videos produced by black activists who are championing uh, civil rights. Of course, if you go on uh, YouTube and look for a black activist championing atheism, you're not going to find hardly anybody. So it's, it's not that there are not activists in the black community. Now, I've protested in years past in front of black churches. And it was... Uh, I was a little reluctant to do that at first, but I found out it wasn't any different than protesting in front of a white church. They hate you anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't really uh, find it to be any more dangerous, but um, the black community, they seem to be more religious um, overall than 
white communities. I know uh, I've talked to so many uh, people in the white community and they don't seem to really care that much about the religion, religious issue. But you go into a black community, they care a great deal about the religious issues. It is more difficult to reach them. And I think as you pointed out, if you invite them to become a participant in the atheist movement, the first time they show up at a atheist meeting or a gathering and they look around and there's, they're the only colored face there, most of the time you never see them again because they don't believe that you are inclusive. They, they are skeptical of the idea. And uh, I don't know even I, myself, I'm not aware of any black atheist groups anywhere in the country. Now, they, I do definitely, know, yeah. they definitely do exist. They're not, you know, they're not as many necessarily or as well known. There was the uh, black skeptics group of Los Angeles that does the humanist scholarships I mentioned earlier. There are, um, there's a black atheist group in Michigan, there are some others. But yes, I agree. I mean, the black community historically has been more religious. And I, I think I touched on some of the reasons for that, like this issue of societal privilege and to what extent can you diverge from the norms of your own culture, your community without facing severe backlash. White, white people often have multiple communities, multiple safety nets to fall back on for black people and for minorities in general, they often don't. And when the church is not just the hub of religious belief, but the hub of community organizing and civil rights activism and mutual support. They, they don't have a lot of fallbacks if they leave that support structure. And they you know for a black person to come to an atheist meeting is they are taking a very big gamble. And that is definitely something we have to recognize. You know, if you, you are leaving your own community without any guarantee that there will be another one waiting to receive you. And I definitely think it's important not to swarm them with questions or advice or, you know, well-meaning, but often not well-informed generalizations. I think the best thing we can do is to let them take the lead in telling us what, what kind of involvement they want to have and what activism they're most comfortable in. Thank you, Jim well, Young. Um, well, I do have one, one follow-up comment, and that is within the atheist community, since atheism is not a philosophy, we are uh, likely to encounter people of all sorts of ideologies, including white supremacy. And unfortunately, um, if people in the minority community encounter a white supremacist who is an atheist activist as well, it seriously damages the reputation of atheists. That's my last comment. Yeah, yeah it, defi it definitely does. And you know, when, when white atheists are silent in the face of prejudiced remarks, then it really, it really fosters an unfortunate impression of us among minority communities. And I think the best thing we can do, and uh, Jim put this question in the chat, like what can we offer to a curious black inquirer? The best thing we can do is not to surround them with questions and say, oh, how, how can we bring more black people into our atheist group? Like, what do, you, what do you want? What can we do for you? Tell us. I, you know, I think the best thing we can do is show that we're taking an active stand against white supremacy, whether or not there is a black person in the room. Uh, and that is, you know, that is a tough thing to say, but I, I think, like I mentioned, attending Black Lives Matter marches, and there are other groups 
that do civil rights activism that we can participate in or at least support from the sidelines. And this, you know, when, when reaching out to the black community, to minority communities in general, it may be that the group we have to partner with is a church. And that kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. It's probably going to be very awkward for both sides. But I think it's a worthwhile endeavor to, if you find a group that is doing worthwhile social work among minority communities to reach out to them and say, what can we offer you, whether they are religious or not? I think it builds bridges. And that doesn't mean we have to um, abstain from critiquing religion when it acts in socially harmful ways, but I think it does require recognition that we can still partner with people on which we might disagree about other issues to make a meaningful contribution to society. Thank you, Adam, and thank you, Jim Young. Bill Norsworthy, it's, you're up. Okay, thank you, Adam. That was very good, very helpful, uh, and a lot of insight there to some of the uh, uh, social aspects of this. One thought that has come to my mind about this as we've been talking about it is kind of the reality of the ongoing stigma that attaches to the word atheist. And it, it, uh, it has always been used by the religious people as a trudgen to beat us over the head with uh, because they are so threatened by the idea of atheism. It's just too dangerous to them and they can't accept it, they can't allow it because obviously we are the ones who are damned and we're going to hell and they are the saved ones and that's the great divide that, that they have created. So here we are trying to be play nice. We're going into a gunfight with a little pen knife <laughs> and it's very difficult to win in those kind of battles. And so yeah, that and stigma, that stigma that we contend with, I think is reflected in the fact that so many people who are, are willing to come out as atheists tend to be at the end of their career or they're uh, retired already because if it came out at, that they were atheists, it could hurt their career in their work environment. And so now we're trying to take those ideas and say, let's take this over to the black community where they are very tightly uh, connected through their religious affiliation. And let's try to pull some of them over to us. And that is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, you, you touched on that very well. And uh, of course, yeah. the, the word religion comes from the, uh, the Latin word for binding together. And people in religion are bound together. So yeah. what yeah, do you use the term Use the term stigma, which I like, which I, I think is a good way to think about it, which is that being an atheist carries a certain type of stigma in wider society. And being a black person can also carry a certain type of stigma in some aspects of society. And being a black atheist, it's like taking it's like taking a double stigma onto yourself voluntarily. It's something that's very difficult to do. And I feel like when you are a member of a minority that faces prejudice, you will want to cling to every support network you can find. And something else I just wanted to mention that amused me is that in terms of stigma, a lot of social reform movements have been demonized as atheism in the outset. I want to read this quote from Andrew Sullivan the other day. I noticed this on Twitter. I was very amused by it. He said that the context of Black Lives Matter 
is atheism, postmodernism, and a profound attempt to destroy liberal democracy. So here we are trying to reach out to black people who are, tend to be more religious than the average. And here are pundits like Andrew Sullivan saying Black Lives Matter are all atheists. And I would say, well, I only wish that were true. It would certainly make our job a lot easier. I, I think every social reform, and I, I post an example of this on Twitter, every social reform movement through history has been called atheistic at the beginning. There was a uh, pre-Civil War preacher named Benjamin Palmer who said that the, abolish, the abolitionist spirit is undeniably atheistic because Christianity stood for God and patriotism and country and slavery, all the things that had been ordained by God at the beginning. So in, in retrospect, this kind of feels like a compliment, maybe one that he didn't intend that the, ab the abolitionist movement was run by atheists. I don't know if that's true, but I, I appreciate it. And I think in 50 years, people will be saying the same thing about Black Lives Matter, that the way, the way Andrew Sullivan today says it was atheist, I think in, in 50 years, religion will be taking all the credit for it. This, this tends to happen a lot with social reform movements that are initially opposed by churches. Once they succeed, then the churches take them over and say, well, we were on their side from the beginning. It definitely happened with the civil rights movement in regard to white churches. That will probably happen to gay rights too. You know, in, in 50 years, I bet all the churches will be saying, yes, we were in favor of gay rights from the beginning. Yes, I think you're right. Um, Bill, did you have anything else? No, that's good. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Bill. David Van Ness. I can never say your name right. I'm sorry. Van well, I know. I know who you're talking about. So that's, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Adam. That was, that was very good. Um, there was, I kind of asked a couple of questions, but I wanted to ask first, um, there was a black gentleman who was uh, part of CFI, I'm going back maybe 10 years, I heard him talk uh, in uh, Tampa, uh, it was an event sponsored by uh, CFI, he, he was um, uh, head of an organization um, had for um, black uh, secular humanists. And does anyone remember his name? He had written a couple of books also. Uh, it was the African Americans for Humanism, and his name is Norman. Norm MacDonald? Uh, no, not Norm MacDonald. No, not Norm MacDonald. someone else. I know, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I can't, I'm going blank on the last name. But uh, if you look up the organization, African Americans for Humanism. Norm, Norm Allen. Norm Allen, yes. Yeah, I knew him. Whatever became of him, you, you know, I haven't heard anything from him or about him in a long time. He's he's still out there. I mean, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these people never quite attain the high public priority, not priority, precedence, visibility that a lot of the, you know, the big names of atheism have. But they're they're definitely still out there. They're still doing work. It's not always recognized or rewarded as it should be. And this kind of goes to the the point about what does the atheist community look like from the outside that we give so much attention to these white scientists and white journalists. And there are, there are black atheists out there, like unsung, underappreciated, doing this kind of important work who are just not getting the same degree of recognition for it. Um, just to pick up on uh, what Bill was saying about uh, calling yourself an atheist, <laughs> I think that's kind of leading with your chin. I, I think I would uh, probably refer to myself as an agnostic uh, and promote agnosticism, which is not, doesn't carry the, uh, stigma of being anti-religious really as much. Um, it just carries the stigma of uncertainty. Uh, and I think that's maybe a better uh, 
Yeah, and I can, I can imagine, especially for members of minority groups, it's true, I think, you're right, that agnostic, and there are other terms like humanist that don't carry the same stigma. And perhaps for members of minority groups, that would be an important labeling choice to make because it can reduce that burden of a double stigma. I personally like the term atheist. I, I like what you said about leading with your chin. It's true that it feels a little confrontational. It like gets under people's skin a little bit. And that's actually one of the things I like a bit about it because I feel like it's a good opener for a conversation to, talk, to tell someone like, what, what do you think an atheist is? What do you think you know about atheism? I find that that's a good way to, to get into an interesting conversation, but I don't you know, I don't want to tell other people how they should label themselves. And certainly if you would prefer to call yourself an agnostic or something that is perceived as softer or less offensive, or possibly some people just don't know what agnostic means, so they don't have that hostile reaction to it. But yeah, whatever way you're most comfortable labeling yourself, I think is fine. Well, I was, uh, you know, I've known a lot of, um, well, I've known a few uh, Jewish people who, very secular and even atheistic and but they still uh they still keep kosher they still have a seder you know uh they haven't given up involvement with the the, uh, the local temple or whatever and um i don't think it's necessary for a black person to sever relationships with a church just because they don't believe in god anymore i think it's uh the two aren't necessarily incompatible but I think for for them to give up those beliefs, they have to be convinced that number one, that belief in God is bad for them, and 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 two, that not not non-belief is is better is good for them or better for them. And uh, I don't know how. You have any ideas? That's a, that's an think? interesting suggestion of what you said about being culturally Jewish. I've heard and I've seen that becoming culturally Catholic is also becoming a trend in the same way that people who feel a connection through um, through ritual to a belief system that they don't you know necessarily believe in. And I think that's that's a very interesting question whether this could emerge with the black church or with other minority religions. And I think it's it also depends on whether the church or religion in general decides to tolerate it. I think Judaism has always been a very you know sort of rules-based religion. It's more about what you do than what you believe. So Judaism is somewhat of a natural fit for that kind of, of atheistic practice. Whether that is true for the black church, I don't, I don't know if it's true now. I feel like it could become true if the number of people who feel a cultural connection but not a belief connection grows large enough. This could definitely be a thing. Well, it was, it was not a thing when I was back in my Baptist days. Uh, they certainly, it's like, well, yeah, you could come there and... Uh, make your offerings and stuff but uh, the minute you mentioned that you didn't believe you were going to be piled on by people uh, you know trying to uh, convert you back so uh, you wouldn't be accepted for long well I think, as some, there, yeah. sorry, I think there are also a lot of people who especially in the black community there are people who are you know who are successful and therefore their connection to the religion is assumed I think this happens a lot that people and in, influential people in the civil rights movement were not necessarily believers, but that was not widely broadcast. Like um, Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, a, a. Philip Randolph, who worked with Martin Luther King Jr. There are a lot of free thinkers among the black civil rights movement. But, yes. you know, because King was a Baptist minister that tended to overshadow them all. But that, you know, that's something, that's a good example to draw from because you can, religious and non-religious civil rights figures can work together fruitfully. That gives Indeed. me a little reason for optimism. Yeah. 
Because I, uh, what I was going to say is I was raised in a fundamentalist church, and you would never, ever go in and say you weren't a believer because you would be... <laughs> yeah, you'd be in physical danger. Um, I, I did want to, if, if we're, I, I did want to talk a bit about the cancel culture thing, and uh, I had not associated it with um, the, um, uh, now the word eludes me as to what you called it, but the, the shame and the um, ostracizing. I'm yeah. sorry? The disgrace. Disgrace, yes, thank you. Um, because it is very, it's, it's, it's a dilemma because I, I, I was a little familiar with uh, your, your situation with the, I, I remember the woman who had uh, called the police on the, on the Yale Law student or the graduate student and remember that situation. And I, I think it's a mistake to cancel out everything somebody has done because they make even what I would consider a serious mistake and a disgraceful mistake, but at the same time, doesn't negate all the, all the good things they might've done. I mean, we have that with Jefferson, for instance, he did some good things. He did a lot of really bad things, <laughs> um, but I don't know how we get past that whole thing of, it's, it's, I hate to use this analogy, but it's black or white. You're either good yeah. or bad, and there is no in-between. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, cancel culture is one of those terms that it has a lot of different meanings, depending. It means all things to all people. You know, some people will use it in the sense of, like, any rich or famous person who faces consequences for anything they've done is a victim of cancel culture, which I, I think is is kind of silly. Yeah. And I think, and there, I agree that there there has to be room to see a person as a complex individual and not just to exile them from their from a community for one mistake and i think you know there anyone can can name cases where it's gone too far and everyone will disagree on exactly where the lines are drawn i think we have to evaluate the whole person and not just you know how many people would come off well if you judge them by the single worst thing they had ever done probably not anyone no. but i you know i think there has to be a way for people who have who have done wrong to make up for that for that mistake, and like you know, I I don't like this term, but a process of repentance. And I don't think we have quite decided what this is going to be. I think there's a lot of anger right now because many rich and famous people are facing consequences for their actions in a way they are not used to, and that the idea that they are accountable to others is something that really stings them. This is something that you know atheists certainly have firsthand perspective of. A lot of religious preachers and authority figures are totally unused to being questioned. And if they face an atheist critique, they might, you know, they, they might complain that they've been canceled too. Cancel culture is really in the eye of the beholder. But I, I think it's important to hold people accountable, but I also think it's important to forgive. And if I'm, if I'm not the victim of someone's misdeed, I don't think I have the right to forgive them. But I think there has to be, you know, a procedure, a way by which this can happen. Uh, just one more, oh, one more thing I wanted to mention that I thought was interesting was this, um, the latest example of this sad trend, the Central Park Birth Watcher case. Mm -hmm. the, um, the woman who called the cops on a man, in, a black man in Central Park, who asked her to leash her dog, and that that man, Christian Cooper, said he doesn't want her to be criminally prosecuted right. for making a false nine one one call, because he he basically said like she's she suffered enough already. I don't want to heap more consequences on her, even though the Manhattan DA is threatening to prosecute her for that. And I I think that's that's a good pattern to emulate that we can say you know what what you did was wrong. 
And I'm not saying you should face no consequences, but I don't want to ruin your life for it. Yeah, there's got to be proportion. And I know that I'm going to tread carefully on this one because I have, um, there are many white males in our group and many of them are very defensive of Sam Harris and Michael Shermer. And I have had many arguments with them, uh, not so much about uh, what you brought up, uh, but the whole um, sexual harassment thing of women, especially the accusation against Michael Shermer and, yeah, and that whole issue. And I'm wondering how do we, how are we able to deal with those controversies in a way that, that is productive? Uh, that's a tough one. So I, ha I have somewhat of a personal perspective on this because one of the women who accused Shermer of sexual harassment is a friend of mine. And it goes without, it goes without saying, I believe her. Shermer said he made some innocent gesture that she misinterpreted. I, I believe that she knows what she saw. He, if, if you really want to know the gory details of this, she said he was manipulating his crotch while talking to her. And I, she says she knows what she saw and I believe her. And I think this is a tough one because Shermer has absolutely vehemently maintained his innocence. And I, not being present at any of these incidents, I can, you know, I, I don't know exactly what happened. I wasn't there. But something I, I brought up in reference to claims like this is that atheists tend to take as our maxim that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But unfortunately, I, I hate to say it, but the claim that a powerful man has used his power to abuse women is not an extraordinary claim. It's an ordinary claim. Yes, it is. And I, you know, I don't know what kind of consequences he should face because I'm, that's not up to me. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not any of the people who have been harassed. But I think when, in general, believing the victims is a reasonable stance to take because people do not, especially independent people who aren't obviously working together, don't tend to just make up accusations for no reason. And I think women know that making an accusation of sexual harassment against a powerful man often blows back worse on them. Um, the woman, I'm sorry, her name escapes me, who accused uh, Kavanaugh of sexually harassing her in, in grad school, uh, who, who testified about it when he was being confirmed, she has still not been able to return to her house right. because she has received so many death threats and threats of violent attacks on her and her person and her family. So I, I tend to take into account that people do not make these accusations lightly. They know that they will receive blowback for it, and they're usually right. But the problem that I'm having is that so many of the males I know get so defensive when a man gets a one of these idols, yeah. whatever, I mean, the superstars and the atheist movement gets accused of anything, it almost becomes impossible to discuss the issue in a way. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, people, people do get defensive because no one wants to believe that. Thank you, Christine Ford. From the yes. chat. Thank you. People do not want to believe that someone they admired and looked up to is capable of such terrible things. And I, I know that I have gone through the same process of disillusionment with a lot of powerful men in the atheist community. You know, Jim's introduction mentioned that Richard Dawkins cited something I wrote in one of his books. And when that happened, that was the highlight of my life. I, I admired him tremendously. It was like you know, getting a personal contact from, your, from a rock star. And then to find out, I know Dawkins has not been accused of any sexual harassment, but I think he's made some very poorly judged comments over the years. And it's sort of my esteem for him has sort of slowly gone down one notch at a time. And it's been, it's been a difficult, it's been um, like a reluctant process. I don't like having to do that. 
it really hurts to feel that someone you once looked up to is not you know, the idol you thought they were, that they are, have feet of clay, so to speak. And unfortunately, I wish there was a way to overcome defensiveness, you know, because everyone is defensive about things that matter to them. And there's no, there's no magic solution for how you teach people to stop being defensive. But I always say the thing that really settled it for me when we heard about a prominent atheist being accused of participating in sexual assault or covering it up, that like when the church did this, when Catholic priests were abusing children and they were covering and they were covering it up, you know, we ripped them to bits and we were absolutely right to do so. Mm -hmm. They the churches did a horrible thing and they tried to hide the evidence of their crime. That is disgraceful. But for us to make that criticism with integrity, we have to be better than that. If it's not just a matter of one team versus the other and both teams do the same thing, you know, yeah. if, if we want to claim we occupy the moral high ground, we have to take accusations against our own as seriously as we take accusations against the priest or a preacher. And if you want to say that, you know, for, for instance, Shermer hasn't been convicted of anything in a court of law and therefore he shouldn't face any consequences, by that same logic, then any priest who is accused of molesting a child but has not been convicted in a court of law also needs to be treated as innocent. And I think a lot of atheists don't display that consistency. It's human well, nature. Yes, exactly. Um, Jim Young, I noticed you had your hand up all ago. Did you want to comment? Yeah, I wanted to comment. I wanted to thank you um, for mentioning scientific racism. I know it's a dark part of the history of the scientific community uh, with respect to the theory of evolution. And a lot of people don't like that to be mentioned. And uh, with respect to Sam Harris, I'm extremely disappointed in Sam Harris. He is a very good voice for, you know, championing uh, for the cause of atheism, but at the same time, by some of his racist positions, he does, in my opinion, more damage than what he was doing in a positive way. So I'm not really a big fan of his anymore. Um, I, I think we, we have to be careful who we pick in the atheist community to champion our cause because there are people looking for reasons to criticize atheism. And when they see something as overt as racism, then they've got a, uh, a valid gotcha moment, so to speak, because they're going to zero in on that individual and what it was they said and say, this is what atheism is all about, when in fact that's not what atheism is about at all. We have to be careful that we apply ethics to our activism. And I'm really referring in an essence to the idea that we should not subject people who are different uh, to malevolent treatment they, that we ourselves do not wish to be subjected to. And I think that a lot of atheists forget about that. If we're going to really represent atheism as a moral, uh, it isn't a philosophy, but if we're going to be able to represent atheists as, as moral or even more moral and, and humanist as well, then the religious community, we better have some ammunition in our magazine 
And if we're out there um, promoting hate, and then we are going to criticize the the uh, religious community for promoting hate, I think it just falls on deaf ears. That's all I wanted to say on that. Yeah, I I know what you mean about Sam Harris. He was another another person I used to admire quite a bit. I thought his um his book about morality, secular morality, the moral landscape, I thought was dead on. I read it and I I agreed with every word. I thought finally someone is saying this, and to I tend to agree that unfortunately Harris has had some of the worst records among prominent atheists when it comes to racism and uh, like giving you know Charles Murray a platform that type of thing and it's been it's been very disappointing and it's hard for me to say that atheists still occupy the moral high ground when we've had so many prominent atheists fall flat but I think you know if we if we put people on pedestals in the first place that's probably not the way to go about it you know if we treat people as like rational heroes who will Solve, you know, fix the world and solve all our problems for us. We're we're always asking to be to be disappointed. Everyone is human. Everyone has made mistakes. There are, there are certainly people who hold me in low esteem because of the Sarah Brash episode or for other reasons. So you know, I say don't don't idolize me, and I think don't idolize anyone. Just treat people as people. You know, the points they make that you agree with, then amplify those. And when they go wrong, then you have to correct them. I think intellectual honesty really demands that. I just also wanted to speak to your, your point about scientific racism, because that's a really good example of like something we, we shouldn't be defensive about, even though it's true. Because evolution was used at some point to argue that black people and other non-white races occupied a lower rung on the evolutionary ladder. But the best argument against that now is that we know it's false. And it, our, our, the racist history of that idea is only a problem if we're still defending it. As long as we stop apologizing for it and say, yes, People believe this at one point, but they were wrong, and we know better now. I think that's fine. We just have to make sure we're not still repeating the same old mistakes. And I think that's something that Christianity has not learned because they tend to idolize these figures from their past who had horrendous records on morality. The Catholic Church, in particular, these medieval popes who were like theocrats and inquisitors who are still treated as infallible messengers of God. That that we should take that as an example of what not to do. I agree. Jim Peterson, you had that check mark still there, or is that? Yes, yes, I do. I, and I just put it up there. Okay. I'm not just. But anyway, yeah, I, I uh, certainly concur with uh, the, uh, the statements that you've been making the last couple of minutes in that um, uh, advocates for our position, distinguished people, uh, scientists, philosophers, and others who we all know very, very well and whose work. I think uh, stands uh, critical assessment very very nicely. Um, I I think that regardless of some of the accusations which are made, and as yet many of them are still accusations. Judy and I have had some discussions about this, and I do I, I do however feel that we need to take into account the fact that we are mortal, that we do have feet of clay. We are unable to confirm, in many cases, whether or not these accusations are true. But even if they are true, uh, people like, uh, well, let's say uh, Beethoven, who wrote some of the world's most beautiful music, and yet he was one of the world's most horrible personalities. And, and the same is true for a good many other people in various and sundry other ways. Uh, but yet, the work for which they are known, the art, the music, the poetry, the philosophy, the ideas that they have are prized and should be prized. 
um, and, and that's something that we uh, that we need to keep in mind. Um, I, I've always found it curious that um, of all of all the people who are criticized uh, for uh, harboring sexism and so forth, it seems to be predominantly uh, atheist, controversial people, atheist, humanist philosophers, and, and and scientists principally, who over the past three to five years have sustained quite a lot of damage in the in the leadership areas. Um, Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. I think, you know, separating the art from the artist is something we, we all wrestle with. Like, I, you know, to name an example that I've mm. struggled with, I think Thomas Jefferson was, you know, an out, outstanding intellect. He was a non-believer. He's probably one of the people most responsible for the, for the U.S. as we know it, for our, our secular constitution. But he did believe in slavery, and he did personally own slaves, and he had sexual relationship with the slave woman, whether or not it was consensual, we may never know. Given the standards of time, it's almost impossible that she could have refused him. And I don't, I don't know how we separate the good parts of a person from the bad parts of a person. And I think, you know, what Judy mentioned before about cancel culture is that a lot of what this is, is that a lot of these historical errors and crimes have been swept under the rug and we only remember the good parts of the people we admire. And I think a lot of this, you know, this push to pull down statues is to recognize that a lot of these great figures have a dark side that has not been given due attention, has not truly been weighed in the balance against their accomplishments. Like uh, Christopher Columbus is another good one. You know, the man, America is like, we think that he was the discoverer of America. And the man committed genocide against Native Americans. He enslaved people, he killed people for not giving him enough gold. This is, you know, this is not even a mildly controversial historical fact. He was so brutal that the king and queen of Spain imprisoned him for it. So maybe he is not the best person to choose as a role model. Maybe we shouldn't keep putting up statues to him. You know, statues say like, what, what about what people in the past do we find most admirable? What facts do we most want to preserve? And I think this, this whole cancel culture argument has a lot to do with people whose concerns were swept under the rug before now saying they, they will not be silenced anymore. Thank you, Jim and Adam. And Bill, we have two more people with questions and then we'll wrap it up because it's getting to be that time. Yeah. Bill Norsworthy, you're next. Okay, I, I think it, uh, this whole issue of our heroes being torn apart um, is really a result of what we are able to do now in creating these superhuman hero people who are we don't just put them on a pedestal, we put them up on the top of the mountain. <laughs> and we say that is the exemplar of all things that are good about humanity. And then, uh-oh, we find out that really they ought to be down in the valley there somewhere because of the things they actually did in their life. What I would prefer to believe that the, the best way that we can uh, honor people is for their ideas. Whoever, you know, when people are ahead of their time, they're expressing ideas that, that are aspirational, that they are able to uh, bring into the, uh, to the awareness of large numbers of people, they are great people. They're not perfect. Nobody is perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. And we need to be careful about putting anybody up on the top of that mountain because they're always going to fail us once we learn everything there is to know 
about their life. Yeah, and I think I, I like that. Don't, don't put people on a mountain. That's true. And I think, you know, with, like when I said about Thomas Jefferson, one of the things that I think, one of the reasons I think we can still admire some of the American founders in spite of their less savory historical aspects is that the one thing they absolutely got right is they gave us a procedure to replace them, to amend the Constitution, to introduce new ideas, new laws, and like things in their time that were not recognized as immoral that we now recognize. They gave, they gave us a way to fix their mistakes. And that is something that is not true of many historical religious figures who believe that the beliefs they promulgated should be unchangeable dogma for all time. You know, the best inheritance we can give the past is to, the future rather, to say these are the ideas we held in our time. We hope you will find them useful. If any of them no longer work for you, then here is how you change them. And that is the only way we make progress. Good point, thank you. Yes. Thank you, Bill and, and Adam and Brent. It's your turn. Again. Uh, um, I was. I'm always reminded of an instance that happened back uh, right around the time I graduated from high school. Uh, Elton John, which people other than Jim are probably familiar with, and Jim Jim Peterson. Uh, but <clears throat> anyway, Elton John came out as gay. And uh, at that time, that was a big deal. That was, you know, they had, there were a lot of people running around saying, oh, I'm going to burn my Elton John records and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and the funny thing is that I, I said the same things then as I say, say now about <coughs> this uh, concept of hero worship. And that is, I said, let me ask you a question. If you didn't know uh, anything about his personal life, would you still like his music? And did you like his music before? Has the music changed? And uh, I argued quite a few, a few people with that one. And I said, you know, just because somebody is personally doing something wrong or what you consider wrong uh, doesn't mean you should abandon the things about them that you like. And I say, have the same argument these days now with people about Ted Nugent. <laughs> I mean, Ted Nugent's one of the biggest assholes on the planet, <laughs> but I always liked his music and I still like his music and I'm not going to go burn my old Nugent CDs because he's an asshole. And uh, I think people that do that are just silly. He was uh, a, just on a, on a personal anecdote. Ted Nugent was supposed to attend a pro-Trump rally in my hometown this past weekend. Uh, uh, he, ended up, he ended up not showing because our governor, Andrew Cuomo, said, well, you're coming from out of state. And because of the COVID <laughs> pandemic, you're subject to a mandatory 14-day quarantine. And he chose not to come rather than comply with that. So. <laughs> uh, I can believe it. But uh, uh, when it comes to... Uh, to statues, uh, I've always been, and again, this is, goes way back since high school days, so long time ago, uh, I've always been opposed to statues of people, of individuals, uh, not just Confederates, but people on, on the, you know, the Northern side too, uh, because I don't think anyone should be deified like that. And that's essentially what a statue is doing. 
Some people say that's a, a, a holdover from my past, from uh, my Baptist upbringing, where you're not supposed to have graven images. But uh, I've always thought that, you know, it, it was true that there should not be statues of human beings because they're just human. I like that. Yeah, I, maybe it is a Baptist holdover, but I think it's a very good idea. And I, I really like that word used, deified, that to make a statue of someone implies that the not only their contributions all good, but that the final verdict has been written about them. And I think history is always a process of reinterpretation with every new generation. We always tell new stories about the past and about the values that we now find most meaningful. Like to make a statue of someone almost literally like puts their ideas, like fossilizes their ideas, puts them in stone. And I think no one should be beyond that kind of reinterpretation of reevaluation. I think every generation has to do it. I think it's normal and healthy. And if more statues come down, but we get better morality, a better society out of it, then I think I'm all for it. Okay, thank you, Adam. Anybody else have anything before we close out? I think this has been a really interesting and uh, thought-provoking talk, and I really appreciate your your uh, joining us. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. I, I really appreciate these kinds of talks because I think talks about getting together and discussing the many ways in which we don't believe in God, I think that's boring. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. It's, it's, more, it's more interesting to talk about what, what other conclusions does atheism lead us to and how can we put this belief into action in a concrete way to, to bring about a better world. That's the only metric I know to judge the value of a, of a belief. Good point. I think I agree with you completely. Um, all right. Well, thank you. And we'll go ahead and close it down unless somebody else has something they want to say. Um, I say, I, I, I say we, we ought to put them up on a statue. <laughs> <laughs> no statues, please. 